and, and here's the amazing thing. If six years ago you had a trunk or you made popcorn or you had some coffee or you brought, man, you had a part in that experience that Shirley had. And you had a part of a family looking for a children's home, man, to find a spot. Um, and so thank you for that. And the amazing thing is that tomorrow night, right, who knows how many more stories there are out there of people who are just trying to process things. Um, and they're just looking for a place where they feel like they fit and they connect. And tomorrow night, for a bunch of people, could be a first step where they just feel welcomed. And sometimes the very first thing a person does before they want to commit to a church is just feel welcomed by a church. And we have an opportunity to do that, and it's an amazing opportunity. And so for those of you who are serving or brought candy, um, thank you. We're praying about what God's going to do tomorrow night. We're excited about it. And so thank you for giving up your time, and thank you for giving up your gas to go get uh, lots of almond joys to hand out or whatever. Uh, there's still a bunch of cards. If, you'd love, if you know some neighbors or some family members who have some kids that may just want to come, we'd love for you on the way out to grab one of the trunk or treat cards, uh, knock on the door, hand it to them, right over, throw it in their mailbox, text them, let you know you put something there for in a great way to invite people. We are watching the weather. And so rain or shine, man, we're going to be smiling and loving people for Jesus. And we'll either be doing it outside in the parking lot or in here, and it'll be great. And Jim and his team will let you know all about those details. So we're excited about it. <clears throat> Thanks for the role you're having in it. Uh, maybe try to be purposeful in the next day or so, inviting some folks to it. And we'll just see what God does to it like he's already done in the past. So and I'm excited as we open up the Bible like we do every week. If you're checking us out, what you, we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we work through it uh, many times sentence by sentence, definitely paragraph by paragraph, and we just hit the next chapter and the next paragraph and what God has for us we talk about. And we are doing that through the book of Revelation. Woo! Not... I got to say it, not because I think the world's ending, although it might be, um, but we're doing it because it's a book that has such an appeal to so many people who are either Christians or not even Christians. And prior to Revelation, we did a bunch of books in the Bible that had some real great application, um, but Revelation is a tough book to really understand and grapple with. And so, like I said when I kicked it off, I thought, man, it's time for us to dig our teeth into a big old fat T-bone steak and chew on a book of the Bible and grapple with it and understand it. So we've been kicking off Revelation. We're in this part where uh, Jesus has been talking to seven churches that were in existence during that time. And pretty soon we're going to pause for a Christmas series because as Dean last week wrongly told you, he claims that the Christmas season has begun. That was heresy from the pulpit. I just want you to know that. Uh, I don't care what Home Depot says or your favorite big box. Christmas season doesn't begin till Santa Claus comes on the Macy's Day Parade, okay? <clears throat> and then it's Christmas season. Um, but we'll pause for Christmas, and then back in the new year, we're going to get in Revelation into the part that maybe this is why you were so excited about the series. Man, we're going to talk seals and trumpets and dragons and beasts and all that stuff. We're going to try to figure out what in the world does that mean, and just as importantly, what is, whatever that means, how does it impact what I do today in my everyday life with the people who are around me? So we're going to continue today looking at a church, um, but I'm going to pray and ask God to work. Uh, Father, we pray, I pray, that everything we do here at Calvary is motivated from a desire to give you glory. I pray that everything we do flows out of a desire 
to honor Jesus and to live the way that he wants us to live and to love other people the way that he wants us to love other people. And um, so we come to something, some words that you had for a church a long time ago that still has impact and relevance for us today. And as we've sung songs about you being our cornerstone and the confidence we have in what you've done for us, and as we'll celebrate what Jesus has done for us later, will that be uh, our worship to you and honor to you? And as we open up your word, Father, may we hear from you what you want us to know, and may we live it and live it out and experience. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. <clears throat> Amen. Well, what we're going to do today is we're just going to jump right into it, and we're going to visit a map that may be very familiar to you if you've been around. Um, here's the amazing map. It makes me think of Dora the Explorer. Anybody remember Dora the Explorer? Whoa, look at that. It's the map. It's the map. Okay. Well, this is the map. We've been walking our way through, and we've looked at uh, the church at Ephesus and what God said to them, the church of Smorga, the church of Pergamos, this church. Let me tell you all something. I've got more feedback from my sermon last week than any sermon. I walk in because I said the word that is the most soothing word to say, right? But I walk in on Monday morning, and Andrea, my assistant, says to me, Peter, I just want you to know, it is not Thyatira. It is Thyatira, right? And she was not the only person to share that piece of wisdom throughout the week. Countless of you have been like, man, Peter, we so appreciate your sermons, but it's not Thyatira. I don't care. I like saying Thyatira. It's more soothing than Thyatire, whatever. But last week, we, last week, we talked, it's just pure ridiculousness. Last week, we talked about this, right? So um, this week, we're going to focus in on a letter that Jesus wrote to the Apostle John, who's in house arrest out on an island, uh, to this church in this city. And we're going to start by thinking about the city of Sardis. I told my wife, like, I'm just going to make up another name. I'm going to call Sardis. We're going to look at the city of Sardines today. And it's going to be, no, but the city of Sardis. Um, Let's think a little bit about this city. Back in the day, back when, ancient, when these things were written, right before this was written, but man, back in the day, uh, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was like the city that you wanted to go to. You think of cities today that are, right, travel and leisure's number one city in the world. Well, back in the day, that would have been Sardis. It was a beautiful city. It was a clean city. It was a wealthy, progressive, had all the new buildings, had all the shiny stuff, had all the things that you wanted to see. It had money that was fueling the growth of the city and the beauty of the city. Around Sardis, um, there's the, there were these resources where some of the purest gold and silver were in the various areas right outside the city. And so Sardis as a city had the opportunity to leverage those resources, and they had a huge gold uh, storehouse. They had a huge silver storehouse that was some of the purest that you could find, and this drove its success. The writer Aesop, Aesop's Fables, rumored to have come from Sardis. I don't know. The interesting thing about Sardis, though, this city, again, man, just killing it. And Sardis was positioned on top of a hill, kind of on top of a plateau that was about a thousand feet or so above this river valley. So there's a river valley down there. Some of these rivers had some gold stuff in it. Up above it on this plateau was where the city of Sardis 
uh, was situated. And the interesting thing about the city of Sardis is on three sides of this plateau, three sides of this hill, there were these very, very steep, almost perpendicular rock walls. Have you ever seen Free Solo? Or do you know about that movie, Free Solo? What do you people do? <laughs> Free Solo. If you're scared of heights, don't watch it. It's about this dude who climbed, I think it was El Capitan, without any ropes. That's why it's free, and it was just him. El Capitan is this massive face, and old boy is up there with no ropes, with just his fingers and his little toes climbing this thing. Ah! Spoiler alert, he doesn't die. That's why there's a movie about it. But you need to, it is this face, this cliff, that dude's climbing up. Well, Sardis, it wasn't quite that dramatic of a cliff, but Sardis, this wealthy city, killing its city, going well city, was at the top of this hill with three different faces on it that were nearly impossible to climb up. The only way into the city of Sardis was through another rocky kind of... Um, pathway that you still had to climb, you still had to navigate through. It wasn't easy, but there was this little path back uh, to the backside of Sardis that if you climbed a little bit and if you scrambled up some rocks, you may be able to get up there. But essentially only one way into the city that was a very difficult way itself. And over time, what happened in the city of Sardis is these people who were on top of this hill with these walls and this path that nobody could get through became a little overconfident. They started to believe their own press that, well, nobody's ever a threat to you. No attacker can ever get to you. Nobody can bring you down. Nobody can conquer you. Nobody can harm you. Man, you guys are good. They started to buy their own press. And over time, they started to believe that, yeah, nobody can attack us. I mean, look at all that we've done well over the years. Look at our safety over the years. Look what we've succeeded in over the years. Look how we've been so safe over the years. We are good, and nothing's ever going to come our way that's going to harm us. And over time, that started to attitude started to make its way through the water. And as a result of it, they got complacent, and they got lazy. And interestingly... They got so complacent and they got so lazy that they started this pattern of not positioning any watchmen around the different places in the city. When they knew that there were enemies who were trying to take over the city of Sardis, what they said to themselves is, whatever, ain't nobody going to be able to come up here. And so literally there would be some evenings where they're like, yeah, a long time ago we had watchmen, but we don't need it. So, man, you guys just go on back, play some Angry Birds, right? Do, do read a book. You, you don't need to be on, on watch tonight. But what happened is the enemy started to realize that they had become smug and complacent and weren't putting people on guard duty anymore. And so guess what the enemies did? They're like, man, there ain't nobody watching that city. And so two different times over this different hundred-of-year span, enemies were able to infiltrate that city. One time, one dude kind of did a free solo thing up that deal, and he snuck in, he opened up the gate, and then his buddies came in. But another night, when the guards weren't there, hadn't been positioned, troops were able to come up that back entrance to the city and then take that thing over. And because Sardis had now been defeated twice... Due to the invasions, due to the other countries coming in, due to the ransacking, it didn't, wasn't what it used to be. Right? It wasn't living up to its past. It wasn't living up to its reputation. It was a city that started to be in shambles. 
And here's what the historians say about this, comparing the prior city to the current experience after it was invaded. One historian wrote this, close to the time after the second invasion. No city of Asia at that time showed such a melancholy contrast between its past splendor and its present decay. The second city said this, it's a relic which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its suitability to present conditions. Man, used to be remarkable, used to be glamorous, used to be known, but because of the very successes became smug and complacent, and because of its smugness and complacency, it fell. And then what it was, was such a contrast between what it had been. And in that city, in Sardis, there were a group of Christians. And those group of Christians were on the same story and kind of the same trajectory as the church itself. And so this morning, we're going to think about the church in Sardis and their story. And here's what is written to that church. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is what we're going to walk through and think through. If you've got your Bible, if you've got a device, if you need your Bibles, they're outside. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Here's what's written to this church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The city of Sardis had a great reputation back in the day. It was killing it, but now, man, it's dead. And what God is saying to this church is church. Back in the day, you had a great reputation of being alive, but now, church, you are dead. The fourth verse lets us know that there are still some faithful Christians in here, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, right? There's still this faithful remnant, but overall, it's dead. Dead. Not what it used to be as a church, not what it was known for. No strength, no life, no vitality in a city that wasn't what it used to be known for, in a city with no strength, in a city with no vitality, both of which occurred because, as we'll find out, some complacency, some smugness, some arrogance, some failure to persevere had crept in. And this kind of reveals this first initial observation or principle as we think about the story of the city and the story of the church. Here's kind of this first observation that we can pull from this. And you can pop it. I think we have a slide, right? Here's the reality. There is the potential for a community's culture to infuse into a church's culture and negatively harm the church's health. There is the potential for a community's culture to infuse into a church's culture and negatively harm the church's health. And here's the important thing for you and I to know, right? You know when sometimes um, reporters talk about the White House. The White House has decided to do this, right? Or the White House has decided to do this. There is not like an actual house that's roof decided to do something, right? That is a figure of speech referring to the administration, to the people within that, right? It's not the building that's doing decisions. It's the people within that building who are making some decisions. And here's what we need to understand this, right? When we talk about how community's culture can infuse into a church's culture, do you know what a church is? A church is not these cinder block walls. 
A church is not the air conditioner units on the top that break down every so often, right? It's not the, a church is not the concrete. A church is the people who are inside those walls. Everything we're going to read about the church is based upon the story of the people within the church. Whenever we talk about church, what we're really talking about is us. Us. You and me. And whatever is true about you and me in our own lives, and whatever is true about you and me when we come together at Calvary Church, that is what is true about Calvary Church. The story of a church is inextricably linked and dependent upon what is going on in the lives of the individuals who are within that church. So all of this stuff that God is saying to these churches, what he's really saying to is people within the churches. People within the churches. And so when we press it into that way, right, what, what we see is there's a potential for community's culture to infuse into your culture and your worldview and my worldview and negatively harm our spiritual health individually, which then over time harms the spiritual health of the church collectively. What happens to us determines what happens to Calvary Church. What is true about my spiritual walk, what is true about your spiritual walk, what is true about our spiritual walk is what is true about the spiritual condition of the organization of Calvary Church. And this is true. There's a potential for community's culture to infuse into a church's culture, i.e. the values and worldview of the people in the church, and then negatively harm the individual's health and the church's health. That's what happened to Sardis. Complacency and overconfidence in the city led to spiritual complacency and overconfidence in the Christians in that city. The city got hurt. The church got hurt because the values of the city had infused themselves into the values of the people in that church. So think about the town in which you live. Think about the relationships that you have. What are the values of the culture around you? What's important? What are the priorities? What's important to the people who live in your town, right? If you live in Fairfield County, I'll tell you a few things are important. Money, education, looking good, having your life perfect, having more stuff than the people around you, you know what else is a huge value in Fairfield County? Kids. Kids. This idea that, like, if little Billy is not in every possible thing imaginable, like, somehow he's going to wither and die. So little Billy, got to get up at 7 in the morning, go to swim practice, then at 9, 10 in the morning, got to go to hockey practice, then got to go to school, then got to go to tutoring, then got to go to private school at night, then got to go take some music lessons, then play some wiffle ball, all in, and then has pottery at 11, 15 at night just to round it all out. <clears throat> it's true. Because what happens in Fairfield County is you go to the park and you go to a play date and somebody's like, man, we found the most amazing tap dance program for my child. And he is excelling in tap dance. And you know what you do? You go home and you freak out because your child's not in tap dance. 
and you tell yourself, oh my goodness, Billy's not in top dance. Tommy was in top dance. Billy is never, ever, ever going to do well in first grade. If I don't get him in top dance today, he is going to flunk out of second grade. He is not going to get a job. He is never going to get married to anybody. He is going to like, you know, get eaten by aliens. We got to get him in top dance right? There's these values around us in Fairfield County, and you know it. You know that the people you hang with, you know that the town in which you live, you don't know which is the school, you know, you know that there's this, this, these idols, these attitudes, these perspectives. And what happens over time, it's very easy for me to adopt those same perspectives and idols and worldviews. And it's very easy to then start to have those infused into my life spiritually, which impacts what I bring into this church, which impacts the overall spiritual health of the church, because the health and the church is not the bricks, the health and the church is you and me. What are the drivers of the people who live around you? What are the priorities of the people who live around you? And are any of those things impacting and affecting your spiritual health? Are any of those things impacting and affecting your spiritual health? Well, while this principle is true, the question then becomes, well, why specifically did Sardis die? What specifically causes the church of Sardis to die? What specifically causes churches to die? And as I was studying for this, there's um, all sorts of different commentators and authors who kind of came up with their own ideas that, hey, if you have these four things in a church, it's going to cause the church to die. Or if you don't have these things in a church, it's going to cause the church to die. And I don't think that I need to cut and paste those. And I don't think I need to come up with my own thing because um, John himself is going to do something. What John, what Jesus is telling John is some things to the church of Sardis like, hey, here's what you guys need to do. Here's what you guys need to fix. And I think by looking at the remedy, what is, needs to be worked on, we can kind of work ourselves back to what has caused the problem, right? Every appliance in my house that we all bought at the same time nine years ago within two weeks broke. Broke. <clears throat> Microwave, kaput. Dryer, stop drying. Washing machine, water pouring all over the floor. We bought this super cool little Navion boiler thing to put in our basement because it was going to save us all this money, right? Clunk, no hot water, all literally within two weeks. And so all these different repair guys would come. And the plumber who did a great job with the boys like, oh, I got to get like the three-way 72XV valve in there. I've replaced your three-way 72XV valve in there. You know why he replaced that? He fixed that. Because that was what was causing the damage. He fixed that because that was what was broken. And so I think when we look at the things that John is going to say needs to be fixed in this church, we can work our way back to the things that were broken in this church. So, so let's read the remedies, and then from that we'll see what caused this church to die, what can cause churches to die, what can cause me to spiritually wither. Here's what he says. To the angel, verse 2, we'll get there in a minute. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
First thing that he says to this is this idea, church and Sardis, wake up. First clause, first remedy, first thing to fix it. Wake up. It might be better translated, and it is better translated, be watchful. Be watchful. It's very, very interesting. What caused the city of Sardis to be defeated was, you know what? They weren't watchful. They weren't paying attention. They weren't watching what was going on. They weren't being observant. And what Jesus says to this church and this Christians is, hey, guys, wake up. Be watchful. It's this call. It's this call to avoid being indifferent or complacent. A call to avoid being indifferent or complacent, which suggests that there was indifference and overconfidence in the church. Wake up. Don't be indifferent. Don't be complacent. Don't check out spiritually. Here's the first thing we see from this, the first potential cause of a church's death. A church's past reputation can cause people in the church to become spiritually smug and complacent. A church's past reputation can cause people in the church to become spiritually smug and complacent. And so here's the first way, according to John and Jesus, to revive a dead church. Be aware of the church's condition. Be aware. Pay attention. Be looking. Be watching. Don't be snoozing. Don't be playing angry birds, right? Be assessing how are things going on. And we don't need to just assess how do we like the paint, how's the foundation, how's the heater. By the way, we didn't kill you last week. I hope you're grateful. Because apparently some heater had like a carbon dioxide leak. And we had a choice last week. Be warmer or kill all our people. We, we chose to, like, I mean, be colder or kill our people. We chose to be a little colder, right? This isn't talking about pay attention to the heaters, pay attention to the brick. It's talking about, man, be aware spiritually how people in that church are doing. So, how am I doing spiritually? How am I doing spiritually? Am I living off my time in Jesus for a month ago that was very meaningful and compelling? Or is there a freshness a regularity. My heart is this, and I promise you when I can't say this anymore, I'm done. I mean, my heart is that, and I tell this to young pastors, our, man, what we should be doing and what all of us should be doing is that, man, our relationship with God, we should be filling up the, the glass of our relationship with growing God, and that should be what bubbles out and what impacts and what we live off of, right? Our, we shouldn't live off of an amazing retreat we went to seven years ago or a great book we read. How are you doing spiritually? Are you resting on past spiritual times? Or are you growing? Is there an expectancy, an excitement about what God might have for you spiritually, about how he may be teaching you spiritually? What's your condition spiritually? What's mine? And man, I get up here most every week, and I have to, I really do. I, I, I do a gut check. And I'm like, am I getting up there thinking that I'm going to say something eloquent that's going to impact her people? Am I getting up there hoping that a joke of mine is funny enough that people like it? Or am I just getting up here saying, Lord, unless you work, this is going to be nothing? What am I depending upon? I assess my own spiritual health not as well as I should, but how are you doing spiritually? 
don't get complacent. Don't get smug. Don't you dare think the things that happened to that person can never happen to me. Guys, man, there was a study done of pastors who fell uh, a a decade or so ago. And there were three or four common characteristics among pastors who had an affair and it ruined their ministry. One of those four common characteristics and the one that had the most uh, highest uh, pinging of all the pastors was this one that they said, I thought it could never happen to me. Every pastor who's in that study who fell, the largest number of pastors, the one of the four things that they said is that they had this common trait of saying to themselves, I thought it could never happen to me. Guys, it can happen to you. Ladies, it can happen to you. Let's not be complacent and smug spiritually. What's the next cause of a church's death and the next remedy? Well, the remedy, again, well, he says to fix, tells us what got broken. Verse, next phrase, it says this, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Here's what's saying, church, people at Sardis, man, you're kind of dead, right? I used to be uh, run around to do EMS stuff, you know, and you put that little EKG thing and you want to see the rhythm. And there's some rhythms that it's, Uh, Not much you could do. But there are some shockable rhythms. There are some rhythms in the heart that says, man, if you see this rhythm, there is still enough life in there. You get the paddles and you kaboom, right? What what Jay just saying to this church is, guys, you're essentially dead, but there's still an ember. There is still a shockable rhythm in this church. And he tells them to, hey, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Focus on the areas of life. Focus on where God is working. Focus where there is that ember that can grow in the midst of all that's broken. Don't ignore what is going well. Second potential cause of a church's death is this, spending energy and focus in the wrong places and on the wrong things. Second potential cause of a church's death, spending energy and focus in the wrong places and on the wrong things. How many times does this happen in churches? How many times does this happen in my life and your life? We're focusing on some things, but they're maybe not the most important things to be focusing on. We're focusing on some good things, but they're maybe not the best spiritual things to be focusing upon. And so here's the way to revive a dead church. Here's the way to revive ourselves if we feel like we are spiritually dead together as a church protect and build upon what is alive and going well protect and build upon what is alive and going well where has god provided a spiritual opportunity in your life where around you has god provided a spiritual opportunity Where's an opportunity to serve? Where's an opportunity to mentor? Where's an opportunity to give hope to somebody around you whose life is falling apart? Are you nurturing that? Are you pouring into that? Where is God spiritually working around you? And then the opportunity is, hey, I want to go join God where he's working. I want to go join God there. There's this thing um, about finding God's will about 20 years ago. The whole premise of the book is like, look, you look around your life and you see where God is working. And wherever you see God working, wherever you see opportunities, wherever you see possible fruit, man, that's where you jump in and you say, God, I want to get engaged in this area. What's the opportunity around you? 
What's going on around you? What are the people around you who are interested in hope in your faith? Jump in there. Protect and build upon what is going well. And then we continue and we see a potential third cause and a third remedy. Verse 3 says this, Remember what you have received and heard. Church in Sardis, church that is dying, church that your reputation was great, but it's not good anymore, church that has a few embers, but essentially it's kaput, church, Christians in Sardis, remember what you have received and heard. It's talking about remember the teaching about Jesus you've heard. Remember what the apostles have written to you. Remember the truth of God's word. To some degree, they probably hadn't done that. If they'd done it, why would Jesus be telling them to make sure they do it? Here's the third potential cause of a church's death. There's a decline in knowing the truth of God and in affirming the truth of God. There is a decline in knowing the truth of God and affirming the truth of God. And so the third way to revive a dead church and to revive ourselves if we feel we're not spiritually is to reprioritize knowing God's truth and believing it to be true reprioritize knowing God's truth and believing it to be true. But if a church does this, if you do this, and if I do this, and if we do this, but if we don't do the next thing, it is all not as strong as it should be. There's one thing that goes along with this, that we can do this and we can be happy about it, and woo! but if we don't do the next thing, we're going to be in all sorts of trouble. And so here's the next thing, right? The very next word. Remember then what you received and heard, and keep it. Keep it. What does keep it mean? Just take a guess. Take a guess what keep it means. How, huh? If I was where you were sitting, I, you know what I would say? I would say, I bet keep it means to keep it, right? <laughs> right? Keep it. Keep it. What John's saying, what Jesus is saying is, hey, y'all somehow have forgotten God's truth. Y'all somehow have deprioritized God's truth. You've made it less important. You've made it unimportant. So make sure you get back to knowing what God says, right? Know, knowledge, content, grow. But then the very next thing he says is this, but hey, don't you dare make it all about head knowledge. Don't you dare make it all about head knowledge, right? It's not just about knowing what God's word. The challenge then is to keep and to do what you know you're supposed to do. I kind of hit on this when we were in some study eight years ago, maybe, and I talked about bobbleheads. A buddy of mine invited me to the Yankees game to maybe watch uh, Aaron Judge hit and break the record. It didn't happen because everybody walked them, losers to other team. But if we had gotten there early, we might have gotten an Aaron Judge bobblehead. But we didn't get there early, so we didn't get one, right? But you guys know what a bobblehead, right? A bobblehead is like a little skinny body with this big old head. And this big old head just goes, right? All it does, though, is just sit there and do, uh, you know, okay. I shared this somehow, and I was talking, I don't even know how I talked about it. I was talking about um, Duck Dynasty bobbleheads. And do you know what one of you did? Next day I walk in and there's a set of Duck Dynasty bobbleheads on my desk. I don't need any more bobbleheads. That was very thoughtful. A bobblehead has a big old head, but it just sits there and goes, ugh. Way too many times Christians have big old heads filled, filled with knowledge about the Bible. But you know what? They're not doing any of it. I sometimes... I just don't, and I'm not talking to you guys. You know I'm not. I'm not. But I have observed this fascinating correlation 
that sometimes Christians who have been Christians for 110 years old, who know the Bible inside and outside, can be the grumpiest people I've ever met. Amen. (laughs) What is the deal with that? You know what the deal with that is? They know it. Know it? Man, they will work me under the table if it's Bible trivia. They will tell you about the most random Abba-Jabba-Jah. Do you know who Abba-Jabba-Jah was in the Old Testament? Nope, they do. But they're jerks. (laughs) There is no kindness. There is no love. There is no patience. There's pride because they know so much. It's not about just knowing. It's not... I think somewhere where Christianity got a little sidetracked decades ago is we made it all about us trying really hard in our own power to be Mr. Rogers. I think somewhere along the road a long time ago, what we started telling our kids and our grandkids is, hey, you just need to be a nice person. Right? Christianity is just about being a nice person. So we became moralistic. And Christianity is about realizing we're Desperately broken people who need the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Christ to wash over us. It's not just about being Mr. Rogers with his cool cardigan, right? But it's not just about knowing everything and not being a nice person. These things go together. See, I think if you look at many of the problems in our own lives, if you were to track back many of the challenges in your own life and your own story, it wouldn't be a failure of knowing God's Word. It would be that you made a decision not to do what God's Word told you to do. For many of you, if you look at why there's chaos in your life, or if you look at why there's brokenness in your life, or if you look at why there's confusion in your life, it's not because you don't know what God said about what you should do. It's because in the middle of the storm, you decided you didn't need to do it that you knew what was better, that you knew what was best, that you were going to follow that path, and you followed it. You followed it. And now five months later, five years later, it's catching up with you. It wasn't a failure to know the Word. It was a failure to do the Word. Man, let's do the Word. Let's know it. Do you know why we spend 47 minutes on average every Sunday talking? It's not because, like, I'm trying to wear my vocal cords out. It's because I want us to be a church that knows what this is. But I don't want us just to be a... If all we are is a church of people who know what this is, then let's just close the door and sell this thing to, like, a petting zoo and make a little money or something. I want us to be a church who knows what God's Word says, and I want us to be a group of people who are committed to doing what God's Word says. In the everyday, interpersonal relationships with the boss we can't stand, with the spouse who's driving us crazy, with the parent we have a hard time respecting, man, in those moments, that's when we see where we are. And what Jesus says to a church a long time ago who had a great reputation is, guys, you had a great reputation, but somewhere along the way, what seems to happen is you lived on your reputation, you deprioritized the importance of knowing truth, and you deprioritized the importance of keeping truth because 20 years ago you'd done such a great job. Keep it. You know what would be an amazing legacy for Calvary? If somebody comes through the doors of Calvary and says, man, you guys, like, you actually know what the Bible says And you also just were loved me so well. You also loved me so well. Some of you, 
need to say you're sorry to somebody. You just do. No, I don't. They know I'm sorry. That's what some of you say. Well, yeah, I was a jerk, but, but they know I didn't mean it. No, well, maybe they do, but you still need to say it. Why is it so hard for some of you to say I'm sorry? Maybe you don't mess up as much as I do. I've gotten lots of practice. Say you're sorry. You know what goes a long way with a non-Christian who knows your faith but sees you behave like a nincompoop? When you go back up to that person and say, man, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I'm sorry. It's not about just knowing God's word. Many times the fourth cause of a church's uh, death is this. There's a failure to act in alignment with God's word. And so the fourth way to revive a dead church is to obey God's word. Obey God's word. And then there's one final cause and one potential remedy, and we see this in the very next clause, and it says this. Right? Keep it and repent. And repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief of a night, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Interestingly, some of the commentators about talking about the way that Sardis was attacked by those armies described those armies coming like a thief in the night unexpected when the city wasn't prepared. And what Jesus is saying to this church is, look, guys, it's time to get on these things and fix these things and deal with these things. Repent. Fifth potential cause of a church's death is that they did not think that there was any problem, right? They don't think there's any problem. But what Jesus says is, hey, there is a problem, right? Don't get stuck here. Assess what might be going on. Assess where you need to approve and repent. Repent. Deal with it. Address it. Don't say to yourself, yeah, there's some areas in my life that are wrong, but next week I'll get to it. No, you won't. I I've been waiting to order a water filter from my fridge for like months. <laughs> there's so many things I need to do, and you know what I say I need to do? I'm a little worn out today. I'm just going to go watch a little show, and I'll do it tomorrow. Well, tomorrow comes, and I don't get to it. The next day comes, and I don't get to it. The next day comes, and I don't get to it. And Maybe for some of us, that's the way it is with things in our life that God wants you to address. He's like, Bubba, you need to address it now. Bubba et. <laughs> you need to address it now. You're in this sermon hoping it'll end because the Holy Spirit has brought you here to say, look, I know what's going on. And you're talking a great game, but man, there's things going on that I want you to address and deal with now. Repent. Repent. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here, and I'll invite the elders to make their way to the tables. And, and here's the reality. We end where we first started. Whether a church is alive or dead ultimately depends on the spiritual health of the people within that church. My spiritual health and your spiritual health is what will dictate the health and the opportunities at Calvary Church. And so what's your spiritual health? What's your spiritual health? We've talked about four causes of a church's death. Are any of those things that we've talked about that were the problems that that church may be done, is that an area of weakness in your life? Is one of those things something that's crept into your life that can be impacting and challenging you? We've talked about four steps to try to revive a church. Well, is one of those things maybe something that I need to do today to revive myself, to realign myself in the eyes of God spiritually. And, and here's the great 
story for you and for me, right? There are things that we are supposed to do, but what makes us acceptable in the eyes of Jesus never depends upon how well we do those things. What determines whether we have hope of eternal life and forgiveness from God doesn't ultimately, the end of the day, depend upon how good we are because we never, ever can be good enough. What we do is when we understand how much God loves us and we understand what Jesus did, yeah, we strive for holiness. We strive to live the way that he wants us to do, but living the way that he wants us to isn't what originally gets us right with him. What originally gets us right with him is that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We could never be good enough. We never can be good enough. We have the Holy Spirit to help us do those things that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because the standard that God says is, look, I love you guys. I made you. I want you to experience what is best. I want you to have a relationship with me. I created you for that. But in a different moment, in some way, someday, you ran from me. And you never can be good enough to run back to me. And so the story is that God ran after you. The story is that God ran after you through the person of Jesus. And Jesus willingly came to where we are on this earth to be a sacrifice for us, to be a substitute for us, to be punished for us and instead of us because we could never be good enough on our own so that we could then have hope and forgiveness and restoration that doesn't depend upon how nice we can be on our best day, but depends upon what happened to Jesus on his worst day when he gave himself for us. In a minute, if you're a believer in Jesus, we have a chance to remember that. And let me just read to you what is written in Titus. I think this is one of the greatest reminders of what has happened in this story. And it says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Man, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of Jesus. And so in a minute, we're going to celebrate that if if you're a believer. But I just want to pause and just give all of us a moment of quiet reflection. Man, just to think about who Jesus is and what he did for us. And just give you a moment where you are to express thanks to him and gratitude to him. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, then what I would ask you is this, well, what are you ultimately putting your hope in? What are you ultimately putting your hope on? And if, if the story of Christianity is true, and if a guy actually came back from the dead named Jesus, don't you think what he said is pretty important and worth listening to? And I want to give you a moment where you are just to silently reflect And thank Jesus. 
Examine yourselves. There's this verse in Scripture that says, before you take the Lord's Supper, it's a time of examination to see how you're doing. So take that moment, and then I'll walk us through how we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, we are grateful for your patience to us. We are grateful for your kindness. We're grateful that you hold everything in your hand. We're grateful that the reason today we are acceptable in your eyes is not because you look at us, but you see us in Christ. And that our identity and our worth and our value comes from who Jesus is and what he's done for us and us being in him. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that walks with us and encourages us that you haven't left us on our own. Thank you that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. And thank you for the hope that one day we won't just be celebrating this at 498 White Plains Road, but Father, we'll be in your presence with the risen Jesus, celebrating and worshiping together in that day and in that place. And until then, God, I pray that we will remember your grace, remember your kindness, rest upon it, fall upon it, and in response to everything that you've done for us, strive to live lives that bring honor and glory to you. Amen. When you're ready and as you're ready, we have men up here who are going to be holding the elements. We'll invite you to come forward, take the elements, return to your seat. And we're not going to take this together this morning. So in your own time where you are, uh, take the elements and we'll worship together.